My name is Pastor Jim, and it's so great that you are here this morning to celebrate Easter with us. Um, and if you are a guest here today, maybe for your first time, and maybe even uh, not having had an opportunity to get into church much, this is a new church for you. Uh, we're just so grateful to have you here with, with us this morning. Um, I brought some blocks with me this morning. Maybe you played with some of these when you were a kid. I did. <laughs> and uh, so did my kids and my grandkids. And uh, a lot of times I would get the blocks out with the kids, and I would say to them, let's see how high we can stack these. And so we'd start stacking them up, see if this works. And then I noticed in every one of our kids and in our grandkids, they had this twisted urge. I don't know if your kids and grandkids were like that, too. As soon as they saw that stack of blocks going up, they couldn't resist running over and knocking them down. Uh, and I don't know if it's just kids, either. There could be some of you sitting out there this morning. <laughs> Hard to sit in your seat to get up here to knock these things down. I don't know. But I'm going to ask you to restrain yourself because I have a point I want to make here. All right. Uh, the point is that the bottom block is the foundation block. If that bottom black block falls, then everything else falls with it. The bottom block of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection did not happen, then all of our most cherished beliefs, all of our deepest hopes, all of those prayers that we have prayed in our lives during times of deep stress, Sorrow, loss, all of those moments we've spent like we have over the last few moments, worshiping the name of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, then that all falls to the ground. And if the resurrection didn't happen, we might as well, I might as well just spend the rest of the morning talking to you about the Easter Bunny. Because the Easter Bunny is imaginary. We made up that story came to us back in the 1400s out of Germany. I did a little research on that. But it's pure imagination. It's fun. But so also is the resurrection of Jesus. It's just a, an imaginary story. If it didn't really happen. And our faith falls to the ground. So just a couple questions we're going to take a look at this morning. The first one is this, obviously. So, did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? <clears throat> and the second question is, if it did, then what does it mean to me? How does it touch my life today? Let's take that first question first. Did the resurrection really happen? Just let me mention a couple things. There's a lot more we could say, but just a couple things. I'd like us to go back 2,100 years to one of Jesus' biographers. His name was Luke. Luke lived in Antioch, which was about 500 miles north of Judea and Galilee, where the life and events of Jesus took place. So Luke was not an eyewitness of the events that he writes about. Luke came to faith probably through <clears throat> Barnabas, who was a missionary that as the gospel spread, it went as far north as Antioch and a lot farther than that. And Luke heard the message of Christ. He came to faith in Christ. Then he became a partner of the Apostle Paul, 
and he traveled with the Apostle Paul throughout the Roman Empire, uh, and he ended up coming into Rome where he met a guy named Theophilus, and Theophilus came to faith in Christ. So Luke, now, now let me put it all together. Luke was a very well-educated man. In his day and time, he was a doctor. He was also trained as an historian. Both professions which deal with careful research, sorting through fact and fiction. And we can tell that the real story of Jesus, the real history, the real facts behind the life of Jesus were all important to Luke. He didn't want to have a faith that was just sort of a blind leap out into the dark somewhere. He needed it to be rooted to the earth. He needed it to be rooted to time and space. And that's, what he's, that's, that's why he begins his gospel this way. Luke chapter 1, this is what he says. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events, that is the events of Jesus' life that have been fulfilled among us. They, that is, these writers used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the very early disciples. How many early disciples were there? There were thousands of early disciples in that first generation who saw Jesus. And then Luke takes it a step further than that. He not only read all those written materials, it says, having carefully myself, investigated everything from the beginning. I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So here's Theophilus, a brand new believer. He maybe had some questions. You know, sometimes we come to Christ, there's doubts. And God isn't challenged by our doubts. In fact, he welcomes our doubts. But Luke wants to deal with that. And so he goes back. And then Now, Luke spent two years while Paul, his missionary companion, was in prison. Paul was in prison in Caesarea Philippi, which is in the area of Judea, Galilee, back in Jesus, the scene where it all happened. Luke was with Paul at that time. Luke had two years from 56 to 58 AD. He had two years to go around only 20, 25 years later, after the events of Jesus' life, to go around and interview, interview scores, if not hundreds, of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, including eyewitnesses of his resurrection. He saw miracles, and a lot of the stories and accounts that you read of in the Gospel of Luke are based upon his personal interviews with people who, who, who healed, were healed by Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teachings. And then when you read the Gospel of Luke, Luke, as an historian, he goes overboard in documenting the story of Jesus with dates and times and locations and geographical detail and the, might and the distinct names of people. Then you come down to Luke chapter 24. And based upon his interviews, more of his interviews with eyewitnesses who were there, Luke gives us the written record, the historical record, of how the resurrection of Jesus took place. Let's read that together. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now that's just, that's Luke writing pure history. No problem there. Let's look at verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, obviously angels, and in their fright, a very normal reaction to seeing something like that, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men, or the angels, said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Now, you might think, those first three verses, Luke is right in history. But then in verse 4 and 5, man, he jumps into myth. He's talking about angels and glistening and, you know, their brilliance, brilliance shining out from them. Well, hold, hold on that. Hold, hold that for a second. What did the angels say to the women? Those angels take them right back to history. In fact, they take them back to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus, about nine or ten months before his death, had flat out told the disciples as they were making their final journey toward Jerusalem. He told them, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And uh, I'm going to be put to death. But, I'm, but he added, on the third day, I'm going to rise. And, they, and, and so the scripture says that the, the women remembered. But they took them back to history. Um, then, in verse number 9, or 8 through 12, let me read. When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, to the core 11 disciples, and to all the others that were there. Here, here are the names. Here's Luke's, here's Luke's detail. The name of the women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others. There were other women there who told this to the apostles. But look at these apostles, the stalwarts and foundation of our, of our Christian faith. What was their reaction? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You know, Luke writes very honest, honestly here. If Luke was really trying to create a story to substantiate the resurrection of Jesus, he certainly would not have made the core actors become full of doubt and call the whole thing nonsense. Luke is writing honestly, honest reactions. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and then he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Peter runs in. Now, in those days when they buried people, they wrapped them up in as, as much as, uh, as a hundred pounds of strips of white linen. And in between the layers, when they buried them, they put all kinds of spices and ointments. So when Peter goes in there, what he sees, he, he sees all of that, all that linen stuff, it's just laying in there. But there's no body. He went away wondering, what's going on here? Now, I think the first thing we can say here from Luke is that Luke is a serious historian, giving us a record of the most amazing event in history. But there's something else here that goes even deeper than that. Because Luke doesn't just report the testimony of Jesus' followers about the resurrection. It's not just something his followers were saying. 
The idea of the resurrection came straight from Jesus himself. He said that his death and resurrection were the bottom block of his whole life and ministry. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down and to take it back up again. And then in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection. Now, when Jesus made the statement, I am the resurrection, he was saying that he was the author of life. Who is the author of life? He was saying, I am God. I am God here among you. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus was, in other words, resurrection and life are wrapped up in the identity of who Jesus Christ is. So, Jesus Christ, testimony of Luke as an historian, and Jesus, the words of his own mouth, that he would rise from the dead. Now, the second question this morning we want to take a look at is this. So Jesus rose from the dead. What does that mean to me? How does that really touch my life? Well, let's go back to the building blocks for just a second here. Because the moment we're born, we all start to build our lives. We start to, we, we, we discover, we put a, a, a foundation block in place. And then we start constructing our careers, our families, our relationships, our interests, whatever it might happen to be. We start constructing the meaning of our lives. Now, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old grandson by the name of Archie. And the point I'm going to try to make here is this, that when we build our lives, we build, we build our lives out of the things that have meaning to us. Because we can't live meaningless lives. We look for meaning from the moment we're born. So, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old son, Archie. Archie's picture should be showing up here pretty quick. I don't, that's not Archie. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, there he is, there he is. All right, okay. Now, Archie lives way out in Seattle. On his own initiative, uh, he has been FaceTiming me over the last couple months, at least once a week. This past week, he FaceTimed me two times. And we sometimes have 30 to 45-minute conversations, and I want to tell you something. I wouldn't trade those conversations with Archie for all the money in the world, and I'm dead serious. I wouldn't trade him for anything. He shows me his toys. He shows me his ball glove, his bat. I, went out, I was in the garage the other day when he FaceTimed me. I got my ball glove out, showed it to him, pulled out some baseballs, ball bat, uh, now, and he also, a lot of times, like he is in his picture, wears his Cubs hat. I've got him trained. He's a Cubs fan. <laughs> in a couple weeks, Jill and I are going to have a chance to be out there in Seattle, and I'm going to get to play with Archie and spend time with him and his sister, Ada, and, you know, his mom and dad. But all I'm saying to you is this, that Archie, he has huge meaning in my life. He, it's that, those kinds of things get me out of, the, out of bed in the morning. And I'll tell you what, if the day is going a little bit tough and I'm stressed out and I hear my phone <laughs> ring and I look at, and there's, there's Archie, I'll tell you what, it changes me. It changes my mood right away. I'm, I'm back in life. I'm good. I'm good again. Uh, meaning is what we construct our lives out of. 
But there's a problem. There's a human crisis here. Because Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah made this statement in Isaiah 53, 6. He says this, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, upon who? Upon Jesus, the sins of us all. So what, what Isaiah is saying, if we use my analogy here, is that we, we have gone about trying to build our lives without the foundation block that can give meaning to our lives. Uh, you know what? I believe that I love Archie more because I love God first. I believe that having God as the foundation of my life, as the core meaning of my life, as the one who gives ultimate significance and value to my life, all that does is increase the way I value and love all those other meaningful building blocks in my life. But we strayed away from God. We have ignored Him and tried to build our lives on other kinds of foundational blocks. Our careers, money, and sometimes some of those blocks we try to add into our lives, they're even destructive things that really can do us damage. But notice what Isaiah said. Even though all of us like sheep have gone astray, even though all of us turned and walked away from God, yet Isaiah adds this statement. Even so, the Lord laid on him, upon his son, upon Jesus Christ, the sins of us all. Now, I want to ask a, um, a probing question here this morning. It's a really serious question. I don't know if there could be a more serious question. What foundation block are you building your life on? What foundation block this moment is holding up your life and, and giving you your sense of overall meaning and purpose. What is that? A follow-up question. Can you honestly say on this Easter Sunday morning that the dearest one to you, the greatest love of your life above all else is Jesus Christ? Can you say that this morning? That's your deepest love, your deepest devotion, your deepest passion. Or is he just an impersonal religious figure who died on a cross 2,100 years ago and I guess maybe rose from the dead, but you've never put that together so it has personal meaning and, and, and really just turns your life upside down or right side up and sends you off in a new way, a new way of living. So does the, does the message of the resurrection excite you above everything else that excites you in this world? Is it the core building block of your life? If not, then I would suggest that perhaps that foundation block is missing, still missing in your life. What can you do about that? Well, it's what we've all had to do about that. We need to put Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we need to put those two together because we can't separate those two. What happened on Good Friday 
is followed by what happened on Easter Sunday. On Good Friday, Jesus, who was without any sin of his own, he personally took your sins and mine to the cross. He took the blame for all of your sins and, and mistakes and wrongdoings and mine in order to provide a, a way of forgiveness for you and I to come to God. Now, I said a moment ago, all of us have done wrong. All of us have done wrong. All, and, and, you know, I, I guess I would say it this way, that probably the most wrong thing we've done is we've, we've left God out of the picture. We've ignored God. But God wants to be back in the picture. In fact, he wants to be the center of the picture in your life and mine. Now, so one of the symptoms of sin is blindness. And, you know, we can live our whole lives being blind to the very one who shaped and molded us and created us. We can live, that is, that's a horrible blindness. To be blind to God, to be living your life, building your blocks, constructing, all, doing everything you do, work, everything. But all that while, blind, blind to God, blind to the, G, to the Savior who died for you, ignoring him. That doesn't have to be. That, that blindness can be cured. It's cured when we come to Jesus Christ, come with a repentant heart, and say, Lord, I know I've sinned. I've messed up. I ask you to forgive me. I, I give my life to you. And you know what? When we do that, there is a resurrection that takes place inside your heart. Uh, the scripture says that, the Apostle Paul said that, we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses against God. But when we receive Christ, he enters in and, and, and new life, new life begins to spring up in us, the life of Christ himself. And that blindness to God, that's gone and replaced with the sense of his presence and his reality. So this building block that we're talking about today, a foundational building block, of Jesus Christ, based upon his death and his resurrection, upon who he is, that can completely change your life. Well, that can be put in place in your life today if that block is missing. Because Jesus invites you, he invites us, to come to him just as we are. But you, there might be someone here who would say, well, you know, I'm not good enough to come to Jesus. I've I've added too many uh, bad blocks into my life, or I've done this, or I've done that, or I, I just couldn't come to God. He wouldn't accept me. No, that is, perish the thought, okay? Not true. Jesus Christ went to that cross because he loves you. He loves you more than anybody else has ever or will ever love you. He knows, the scripture says that he, he, he knows all your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows you day in, day, in, day out. And he invites you to come to himself. And when you do that, Christ will forgive you. He'll lift guilt off your life. He will come into your life, and he'll begin to reveal his presence to you personally. 
as he did to Luke, as he did to Paul, as he did to all of those who became his followers. And eventually, even those who were doubting him and his resurrection at first. When they came around, they became passionate and fully devoted to living for Christ the rest of their lives. So, this God that may seem like a distant relative to you, just so remote, he can become your first and foremost relative, your heavenly father, your savior, your redeemer, if you'll open your heart to him today. And I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, that you give us an invitation. Lord, the most important invitation we can ever receive, and that is to come to you, to come back to you, so that, Lord, we can begin to construct our lives on the right foundation, the only foundation there is that is going to last forever. So, Father, I pray today that you'll speak to each one of our hearts to examine uh, where we are in terms of you. And, and, Lord, that we will invite you to be God, to be, to be Savior, to be Redeemer in our lives. And, Father, we give you praise for this. I pray for any person right now that is praying that prayer where they sit and saying, Lord, forgive me. Come into my life. I pray that you, Lord God, will come in with your wonderful grace and love and give them that sense of guilt being erased and sin being erased and a brand new life about to be born. So, Father, grant this and we pray these things in Jesus' great, his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.